This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hey guys, welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. This is season two, episode nine, and it's with Sarah Jacob. Now, you may not know Sarah Jacob, but get excited because you're about to. She adopted from India a few years ago, and her little girl was born without an eye. So not only did she adopt internationally, and she had a six-year journey to bringing her little girl home, but then as soon as she got home, they had a crazy journey to go through in getting their daughter a prosthetic eye and dealing with other health issues that she had in addition to caring for their son who has type 1 diabetes. So they are just swimming in the special needs, and they have really had to lean into each other and into the Lord just to get through this time, and I loved hearing her story, and I think you're going to as well. So let's get to it. My interview with Sarah Jacob. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome, Miss Sarah Jacob. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Um, especially, this is another, I feel like this season, I've had so many guests on that I have never met before. And it, that is so fun for me because I get to hear new stories and get to know people a little bit. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's an honor, and I hope it's valuable and a good experience for everybody. (laughs) Oh, um, I'm sure it will be. I've heard a little bit of your story from our mutual friend, and it sounds really... uh, I I feel like saying cool is a weird word to say because I know it's been a roller coaster for you guys, but maybe interesting is a better word. Yes, interesting is a good word. (laughs) So yeah, introduce us to your family a little bit. Sure. My name is Sarah Jacob, and I'm married to Steve. We've been married for 19 years this summer, and we have three kids. We have a biological son who's 14, a biological son who is 11, and an adopted daughter from India who just turned five. That is so cool. And do you? what do you guys do? My husband's a structural engineer, and I am a homemaker. I work a little bit outside the home, but not enough that it makes a big difference in our lives. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, I feel you there. But I think that's so fun with adopted kids for um, us as moms. I mean, both sides are obviously valuable and awesome if you are a working mom and if you stay home. But I I stay home too. And it's just so fun to be able to walk through this crazy adoption thing with them, uh, you know, 24-7 basically. It's fun and it's stressful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a gift. You know, like I realize it's a gift, but it's also... I'm a little jealous at times of the mamas who get to go and, and do other things too. So have lunch yeah. with adults. And- right. Right. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Well, yeah. So, um, tell us about your story, just your adoption story and, um, you know, start from the beginning. If that started back when you and your husband met or when, after you got married, you know, when did that, when did that conversation start? Sure. Um, actually the first conversation about adoption started before, before we were married, we were just, actually, we were just friends at the time. And we were out in a soccer field, just walking and hanging out and in a park area and saw a little girl who was clearly a different ethnicity. I think she was Asian um, from her parents and the parents were cheering her on in the soccer field. And we both turned to each other kind of separately and started saying, you know, wouldn't that be neat? 
um, to adopt. And I was like, oh, okay, so I get to marry this guy, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It was something that I had already thought about as a teenager. And to hear another guy talk about it, I was like, sweet. (laughs) And ended up that we did get married, not because of that, but several years later. And um, the journey to adoption for us was kind of always on our radar. And we hoped to have biological kids, and we did. And after two, my husband would joke that I'm a terrible pregnant woman. So two, I was like, sweet, I'm done, I'm out, no more of that. Um, And we just had planned to adopt from then on. And in my head, I always thought it would be two, but currently we're sitting at one, so never say never. But um, So when our, our youngest son was two years old, it was 2008, we started the process uh, with India. And India came about because um, Steve and I, when we got married, ended up spending about a year in India working with a nonprofit called Engineering Ministries International. And okay. So we lived there for about a year and really fell in love with the people and the culture and just everything about it. Um, and so when it came time for us to adopt, we really had thought for a while that it would be China, just a little girl from China is what I think was in the back of our minds. And then when it was time to actually start, we thought, oh, we have such a great relationship with with India just as a as a people and as a place. And we understand the culture more so than, than any other country that we've been to. And it just seemed really natural that that we go to India for a little girl. Wow. That's really cool. So tell us tell us a little bit more about um about living in India for a year. Did you were you already in love with India or is that really when you fell in love with it? I spent two months in India as um, a college student and really, to be honest, it was kind of a love hate relationship. Like I loved the people. I loved um, just the color and the, the passion and the, I don't know. Indians were just fully in to life and they are just, I don't know, they're beautiful people. And I really fell in love with them when I went there for the summer. And then after we had been married about a year, we were looking into different mission opportunities. And EMI had an office in Northern India where Steve could do engineering and I could work with the interns, the college students who came in. And so that's what we did for a year. And it was, it was humbling and beautiful and, and exhausting. And I got sick a lot (laughs) Um, it was, you know, it's been 15 years ago, so it's kind of in my past now, but, but it just got under our skin. You know, we just love India. Yeah, that's so cool. So how long, I guess I'm trying to do the math in my head, but how many years between when you were living there and when you brought your daughter home, was it? Okay. So what would that be? We came home back to the U S in 2003 and I was six months pregnant with our first. And so, um, actually, yeah, I found out I was pregnant in India there. And so Mercy is nine years younger than Andy. So about 10 years, nine and a half years after we lived there. Wow. So, I mean, you held on to that passion and, and that stuck around even after you were gone. We did, and, and hanging on kind of seemed to be the theme of our adoption. We started in 2008, um, 
and started the home study process and all the, the paperwork and everything. And every step along the way, we would get stalled. Like if there was a place where you could get stuck, we got stuck. <laughs> and it was quite frustrating in every, you know, every aspect. And so we would make it to a certain point and then India would, um, they ended up changing all of their laws and all of their um, systems with adoption. And so everything stopped for six months and then we'd get a little farther and then they couldn't get our paperwork uploaded into this new system. And then, you know, just step after step of, of just stalling and stopping. And, you know, we repeatedly kept going, really, is this what we're supposed to be doing? We thought, you know, we prayed, (laughs) we thought this was the right thing, you know, and everything kept really going wrong. Our dossier got lost. We did another one. It got lost again. Wow. (laughs) You know, we just hit. Yeah. Over and over and over. And, um, well, girl, that sounds like some spiritual warfare. Right. And, you know, all along I'm going, Jesus, I really did think this was you. Like this is really you. Right. And every time we would pray, we really felt like, yeah, you're supposed to stick it out, keep going. And, um, you know, tried to find something to hang on to for hope in that. But it was, um, it was five or six years before we really even got, uh, things moving. Like we finally got a referral after, what would that be? Five years, five and a half years. Wow. And and that was, yeah, I had friends who had like literally like three kids in the time span that I was waiting and, you know, just questioning, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah. Um, Well, and I say that, you know, I say it's spiritual warfare and I think that, but it's so cool how God uses that. You know, when you started that, I'm sure that your mama heart wanted a baby right then, just like everyone else does. But if you had gotten that wish and you had gotten a baby right then, she wouldn't have even been born yet. You know, true, true. I know it's crazy to think, think through all the ifs. Um, and what was wild was, so after, I think it was, I think it was about five and a half years, we finally had a referral and we saw her face and we were like, this is our daughter and got so excited. And then nothing happened for six months and nobody did anything with our paperwork. And, you know, all along it was like, well, at least once we get a referral, then dot, 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 you know, things will kind of be plugging along and happening. And, and then it didn't. (laughs) And we're like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and so we had to keep pushing and keep trying and doing other things. And after a year, nothing had been done. And so we prayed again. And as, as heart wrenching as it was, the gut feeling that we had after praying was that we were supposed to let go of the referral. We were supposed to be unmatched from this beautiful little face that we've been staring at for a year. And I couldn't even get my brain around it because I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, six years, I've been six years in this process. Yeah. Um, and you're asking us to step away and it didn't make any sense at all. But we contacted our social worker and we said, this is just, you know, nothing's happening. Nobody's moving the papers. Nobody's taking the process to court. Nothing's happening. And she hadn't heard anything either. And she said, okay, if you want to be unmatched, then we can do that. And so that night, you know, I felt like we'd miscarried. I'd had a miscarriage, um, of a pregnancy and it really felt like that. I thought, oh my gosh, this is like death. You know, I can't, I can't even put words to it. 
Um, and back then I would kind of blog through the process of waiting. And so I thought, I'm going to write, I'm not going to blog this, but I'm going to write a letter to just the highest person in India over adoption that I can find. And I'm just going to tell them basically how sad I am that, yeah. that we've, we've spent so much money and so much time and so much love and energy hoping to bring a child into our home and then to have it all fall flat and feel like nothing is happening and no one's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so I did, and I wrote this letter, and I sent it off in an email just to some address that I found, you know, online. <laughs> and by the time I woke up the next morning, she had personally responded and said, hang on, don't let go. I will fix this. This is wrong. Wow. And she did. She did. She rattled cages, and she. <laughs> it was amazing, actually. Um, she ended up calling a reporter for a magazine on our behalf and said, you need to talk to this reporter. We got to get this in the papers. And, you know, just all this stuff that I was like, whoa. Wow. But, but things started happening and people started doing their jobs and, and we were able to stay matched with mercy. And, um, it was another, it was almost another year, maybe nine months until we brought her home, but we did bring her home <laughs> finally. Yeah. So it was like seven years in process. Wow. So, okay. So how old was she when you brought her home? When we brought her home, she was two and three quarters, almost three. Wow. And we came home on Christmas Eve of 2015. So that's been two years ago. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. That is so, wow. I'm sorry. That's just amazing. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at pictures of her on Facebook and just seeing the progress that she's grown. And of course I will post all of these on the show notes and I want to get into why that progress is so important too. Um, So just, but before we get there, talk about bringing her home. So Christmas Eve is obviously not an uh, insignificant day in our culture. So um, what is that like bringing your brand new terrified baby girl and then (laughs) beginning the cocooning process during a wildly chaotic holiday. Right. Um, what was funny is obviously we had the opportunity to fly home on another day, but that was the first flight that we thought we could actually get on and get home. And we just thought, let's just hightail it. You know, you know, during the seven year wait, I envisioned this grand homecoming where everyone we know who's been praying us through this process was going to meet us at the airport. And then it turns out that we fly in at 10 PM on Christmas Eve. And I'm like, forget it. Like, I don't care if anybody's (laughs) there, let's just get home. Um, were people there? We did have some family. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, some some sweet friends did meet us there. And that was a nice surprise. I thought it was just going to basically be my mom and my brother with a camera. But it was really sweet. Um, <laughs> One single balloon. and <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, we step off the plane. And she, at the time, was little tiny, 16-pound, uh, almost three-year-old. Wow. And um, she... We didn't really know fully at the time, but she came home with pneumonia. She was, she had a fever. She was coughing. She, you know, we knew something was up, um, but didn't find out until later really what was going on. But uh, she was a rock star. She was a trooper. Like, (laughs) I'd still, it's, it's comical. She, from meeting us and onward, yes, she had some grief and, you know, and processed it definitely like, she would just everything in her life was changing. But, um, after she kind of felt 
comfortable with us. We'd been in country about two weeks. And so we'd had about two weeks to get to know each other before we flew home. Mm-hmm. But really on the way home, she had a fever. She's miserable, but she is snacking and she is playing and, and really was just a doll and really <laughs> did amazingly well on the way back. And, and so we came home and our goal was to cocoon. And I don't know if you talk about that. Um, well, we definitely get one-off listeners. So go ahead and explain what that is. So for us, I know it it varies by family what you do, but the idea is that you want to, especially with internationally adopted kiddos who maybe grew up in an institution and not in a foster care kind of environment, you want to show them what family is. You want to show them that you are their primary caregivers and ultimately that your family is just a unit. And so you try and minimize their experiences and minimize... um, just the overwhelming factors that can be so present in America when you come back. And so we tried to stay home more than, more than normal. We tried to just be very um, intentional about me or my husband being the only ones to feed her and change her and um, comfort her and things like that. Yeah. And, and some people go as far as, you know, you, no one else gets them a spoon and right. some people will allow like grandparents, but you know, you have to remember that these kids are often coming from a place where they have no idea what a single, like, like a caregiver even right. looks like that, like blows my, their minds. So yeah. you're having to overcome those stresses and show them, you know, we are the people who take care of your needs. And, um, we definitely talked about mom shopping on the episode and just how, for people that don't understand, you know, they, they say sweet little things like, Oh, I could just take you home with me. And right. It's not a good idea. (laughs) Right. Right. And so, yeah, even my mom had a hard time with it because we were like, okay, mom, we're going to come home and I don't want you to hold her. (laughs) And my mom's like, what? You know, like we waited all this time and I don't get to hold her. And so I just said, well, let's try, you know, we'll feel out how long I feel comfortable, you know, extending that. But at least for the first couple of weeks, you know, I didn't want, I didn't want anybody grabbing her out of my arms. I didn't want, you know, I just wanted her to know that it was me and only me and my husband and, and then my boys, my boys did, um, I wouldn't say they helped in the caregiving part because, you know, they're boys, (laughs) but they were definitely really present and constant especially for those first couple of weeks after we got home and we tried to cocoon generally for like six months. That's really hard with like soccer practice and school yeah. and all those things. But for us, that just meant that we didn't put her in the nursery at church. We didn't um, get a babysitter. We didn't, you know, we didn't switch up the routine any more than we had to. Right. Which I mean, let's be real here. That sounds really precious, but that had to be really hard for you guys. Like <laughs> you have, like zero date time, zero. I can't imagine. Right. Oh man. Yeah. And and yeah, so precious that we, you know, we had a little crib that was pushed up next to our bed and, you know, I've heard you talk about on another episode that you just um I think it was Sherry anyway, who said you just treat it like treat your child like they're a baby. Just go back to zero. And yeah. so that's kind of what we tried to do and um just treating her like she's a newborn and we're just going to be right there all the time and try to anticipate every need. And, and yes, yeah, so yeah, that's exhausting. <laughs> and there's not much alone time. And 
we joked for a while because she bonded so well that I'm like, ah, you know, she's always on me and I can't even, you know, I can't cook. I was having, you know, I was wearing her while cooking and wearing her while cleaning and, and that's wonderful for bonding, but I'm not a real touchy feely person. Yeah, girl, me either. <laughs> and so, you know, it got old, but I was like, I don't want to project on this child that I love and that I've longed for for years, you know, go away. Like I have to really internally check oh. myself and just make sure I'm not, you know, letting my just tiredness or frustration take over in that regard. Yeah. Oh, girl, I, uh, this is, this is resonating with me so well. So we, when we brought home, well, I say when we had our middle son dropped off on our doorstep, Brock, he was severely drug withdrawing from drugs. And I was about halfway through my pregnancy with my, with our youngest. And all he wanted to do was be held and sleep on me and be worn. And I am already not a touchy feely person. Plus I was pregnant. So I was just not a good mom. Like I was like, this baby literally needs me more than anything else. And I am, I'm so over it. And I felt awful. I felt like such a terrible person. Oh yeah. You know, it's wonderful and it's terrible. It's it's motherhood. It's hard and it's beautiful. And yeah. Yeah, for sure. By the way, I think you were talking about Shelly and she is out of, you're out of Tulsa, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I so is she. You two should be friends. Yeah. You two should definitely be friends. She's awesome. Um, okay. So you have her home, right? It is after Christmas. Thank the Lord. Right. And what, what now? Um, Initially, we'd said, oh, we're not going to start pouring into these doctor's appointments and letting them draw blood and all the things that, you know, they kind of want to do to get everything going um, medically. But we ended up not being able to really wait because she was sick. Um, And I didn't even say, like, with the adoption, uh, with India, most, if not all, um, of the children who were adopted out of India are kids with medical needs or special needs of some kind. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just the way it is. Like if they're adopted out into the U S it's off the special needs list. And so, um, our daughter, when we got her referral, her, her special need was that she was born without an eye. And so she was born without her left eye. Okay. And so, um, I'm thinking when we get that referral, like I have a son who has (laughs) medical issues and I'm like, this is not a medical issue. (laughs) Like I can do this, you know? Um, after the the difficulty of caring with my son who has type one diabetes, I thought this is going to be a cakewalk. You know, this is like, so what if she doesn't have an eye? Like, anyway, I just medically was looking at it like this is not a hard thing, you know? Um, right. And so we get her home and poor thing is so, so sick. And so we immediately start the poking and the prodding and the, the blood draws and trying to figure out what's going on. And, um, you know, and she's she's such a trooper through all of this, but you know, bless her heart, just so many doctors and nurses in her face. Um, yeah. So it turned yeah. So it turned out that she had pneumonia. She um, at this time she was almost three and wasn't walking, wasn't talking. Um, she was a preemie. We knew that, but part of the the issue with her health, or at least the unexpected side of it for us was that our paperwork for her basically gave um, her birth weight and her um, the lack of eye 
and that she was jaundiced. And that is, I think, 100% of what we knew physically (laughs) about, about her before we picked her up. And even trying to get information out of the orphanage, um, was like pulling teeth. We're like, how is she? She is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know? And so, you know, we did get a couple of pictures along the way. And so there was one where she's eating a cracker and I'm like, well, maybe she has teeth, you know, like, I don't even know. Like we just didn't know anything. We find the funniest Um, things to latch on (laughs) to. Right. She can eat crackers. Yeah. We just celebrate what we can. Yeah. And then you tell all your family, guess what (laughs) she can do. (laughs) Right. Um, so yeah, I felt like the the next few months were just a constant stream of uh, not constant stream of medical appointments, but just lots of trying to figure out what was going on. So we did figure out she. I'm trying to think what all we found out initially. They said a, a heart murmur, mild pulmonary stenosis. Um, she had constant bronchial infections, which was what was leading to the pneumonia. Um, she had partially paralyzed diaphragm on one side um, that they said was probably caused by traumatic birth. And, wow. you know, we know, know nothing about her birth story, but just the fact that, that that has lasted because of that is, is so hard to hear as an adoptive mom. AMP listeners, we'll get back to my interview with Sarah Jacob in just a minute. But first, I wanted to let you guys in on some stuff coming up. First of all, you should totally check out the show notes for this episode and every episode. They're all at theadoptivemompodcast.com. And for this one specifically, you're going to get to see a video montage of Mercy's first year at home, as well as some other cool resources that Sarah has for you. I also want to remind you to check out my Thursday show. I do this every week and it's topical. Sometimes it's just answering questions. Sometimes I have guests and sometimes I do giveaways, y'all, just to let you know. So check that out. It's every Thursday on Facebook at 8.30 p.m. I also wanted to remind you guys about the Birth Mom Brunch coming up. Again, it's the day before Mother's Day, National Birth Mom Day. That's May 12th this year. And if you know a birth mom who would be interested in attending, we want to have her. We're going to have an awesome meal. We have an awesome program with speakers that are birth moms themselves. And we'll have some giveaways and some swag bags. And we just really want to take that time to honor them and the choice that they've made. If you are not a birth mom but want to support in any way, please reach out to me either on Facebook or at alexfitton at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and I'd love the support and we love the guests. So surely you can help in one of those areas. Okay, that's all I have for you. So let's get back to my interview with Sarah Jacobs. obvious you know issue and then you're sitting there like no but there's all this other stuff that you're not seeing that's causing you all the stress that you you know I I imagine that that was a little awkward but also um I don't know what what was that like it was different because um I don't think many people in the U.S. have even really met somebody who's missing an eye or if they have they didn't know it because the person had a prosthetic and um it just appeared somewhat normal and so we got a lot of questions, even just strangers in the grocery store. And it's 
kind of bizarre. You're like, you know, hi, I'm just trying to get my food here. And, you know, um, but it wasn't too long after we came home, maybe three or four months after we came home that they sent us to um, an ophthalmologist to check out her eye socket because she has a socket. It just doesn't have a formed eyeball in it. And so he checked it out and he said, oh, I think she'd be a perfect candidate for a prosthetic and um, everything, you know, tissue looks good or whatever. And what was so funny to me, though, was that in the whole, you know, year and a half of praying over her little photo, I never had imagined her with two eyes just because I didn't know even why she had one eye or, you know, would it even be a possibility? So I just never really entertained the thought. And so that was so strange to me. But actually a funny story with that. We had to send in a picture of her to get her visa and her passport made. And so we sent off just some random like referral photo that we had that had a blue background to a friend who did Photoshop. And we were like, can you just Photoshop the back and make it white so we can use this for a passport photo? And he did. And he sent it back and it had two eyes. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) you know, like what? And so I checked with him and he's like, oh, one of them was super blurry. So I just copied one and flipped it over. And I was like, well, (laughs) now I know what she looked like with two eyes. So that was just funny to me that I thought, well, I had never really imagined it, but now I can see it right here because he photoshopped her an eye. Um, And ironically, now that's what she looks like because she has a prosthetic. But um, yeah, so maybe three or four months in, we started the process and got her fitted for a prosthetic. And um, part of the reason for that is social. Part of that is so that when her bones and her face grow, that it grows symmetrically and kind of holds the shape of her um like eyebrow and cheekbone and all that um and and just like everything else she was such a trooper like they're putting stuff in her eye socket and she's like "Ooh, that's cold you know (laughs) but anyway so yeah next step of things we got got through the pneumonia and got some things healed and and she was doing better and she ended up getting a prosthetic eye and, and seriously, we get a hundred percent less comments in the grocery store. Like her preschool teachers didn't even know it wasn't real this year. So wow, it's beautifully done. Yeah. Okay. So for, okay. Well, I have a couple of things to say. Let me, let me organize my thoughts here. So first of all, the reason that I even came into contact with you was because our, we're, we're walking not a prosthetic path, but a similar path with just an adopted kid that has some vision issues that we've had, appointments on appointments on appointments and now they're doing an eye ultrasound which I didn't even know was a thing and um, oh. and so that was why you were referred to me because we both adopted and have kids with vision issues but uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated to hear all, all right. of this and our son is not the trooper that you were describing your daughter to be. Oh, I know. Every, every uh, appointment is like someone is actually murdering him and so uh, that's sounds wonderful that your daughter is <laughs> puts up with it decently but I have I have just so many questions about this prosthetic thing because I, I and I imagine a lot of the listeners have no idea what this means so I mean what what is this prosthetic like what is it made of what was the process to get it um, can it move you know all of those awkward questions that probably right? most people are afraid to ask but I'm fairly shameless so I'll ask them that's totally fine Um, and I say that it's not even my eye, it's my daughter's, but I'll answer. That's fine. Um, it is fascinating. Um, initially they made what was like a conformer, like just a little 
placeholder thing to try and expand the tissue in there. And so it's made of a, I don't even know what you call it, like a resin, like acrylic, I think it is. Okay. And so it's not glass, like everybody's like, oh, you have a glass eye. I'm like, it's not glass. Um, but it's acrylic. And initially they started her off with a little tiny one. And they um, they figured out the shape through this crazy process of this, like, rubber liquidy stuff that they kind of pumped in to her eye socket with, I say pumped, that's terrible, with, pushed it in with like a little medicine dropper, like a baby medicine thing that you push the end of the stopper, you know, and it goes into the baby's mouth. Like it was this rubbery stuff that they pushed that into her eye huh. and it's set and then they take it out and it's like this rubber squishy thing. And then they make a um, mold out of it. And so then they fit her with the eye based on this mold that's made from that quick setting rubbery stuff. <laughs> wow. That is yeah. insane. So they it is. <laughs> molded a bouncy ball into your child's face. Basically. Yes. <laughs> wow. And, and I don't know, I started wondering about your son. I don't know how old he is. Maybe it's the age. Cause initially she was younger. So maybe she was more chill with it cause she was younger or I don't know. Maybe she was just chill. He's two. But, so I think that I think that it it doesn't help that we can't explain to him what the doctor is doing. He just knows that someone is super up in his grill and shining lights right. and touching and um usually somehow all the appointments are around lunch slash nap time. So uh, I don't I yeah. don't know. It's just it's been a rough go. <laughs> yes. So yeah, they fit her with a couple different they'd kinda expand it and do slightly larger, slightly larger until it would mimic um the other one the real eye. And then once they got the size to where they felt like it was a good match, they said, all right, now we're going to make her a painted one. And so all along, all these little conformers that she was wearing all the time, like one of them was clear. And we called that one her sci-fi eye because you could like <laughs> see through it to the back of her, you know, her head. It was crazy. Um, another one was like bubblegum pink. And she'd be like, where's my pink eye? You know? And, and then other people hear that and they're like, pink eye. And they get all scared. But, um, <laughs> So it's random and different. And, uh, and then once they got the size to match her real eye, then there's another person at the ocularist is where we go, um, who paints it. And that was amazing artistry where this woman literally with a paintbrush and like acrylic colors draw, you know, paints on the eye and, they kind of measured her existing eye to make sure that the sizes of the um, iris and pupil and everything would match. And, and then they, you know, have us there for kind of a half day appointment where they would tweak it and, and make sure that the eye itself was sitting to where it would look straight ahead, like her current eye. And, and then they would mess with it and, and add color to it so that it had just the right hues you know, when the light shone on it and all this, it was just, it was beautifully done. Yeah. And, you know, so this was probably a process of three or four months where maybe once a month we got a larger size and then finally went for the, the painted eye. And, and since then she has grown, you know, we talked about how much she's grown a little bit, but she has grown so much that they have had to add on and they've thankfully only had to add on to the back. Um, so we haven't had to get a new whole eyeball. I don't know what the insurance company would think about that. We had to do it all the time. Whew. But um, 
so yeah, so she's had this eye now for almost two years and we have not lost it and the dog has not eaten it and <laughs> all of the nightmare scenarios that they've warned us about haven't happened. So not oh going to we're doing great. So she can take it out then? She can take it out. And so it's just like an acrylic, it's almost like a football shape. Um, okay. You know, and <laughs> she, oh, she has what's called microphthalmia. And so when we first heard about it, her, we heard the word anophthalmia, which would mean no eye in the socket. But we found out from the ophthalmologist that she actually has a little tiny formation of an eyeball way in the back. It just didn't fully form. And so that would be microphthalmia, like little tiny. Um, And so hers, the little football shape kind of has a a cut back on it where it sits on her little tiny eye that's way back there. I don't even know if I should call that an eye, but you know what I'm saying? Um, (laughs) I'm like, it's not really an eye. The eyelet. Right. And so it sits on that. And because of that, she actually gets a little bit of motion with it. Like when she turns and looks another direction, because there is a little tiny, you know, orb back there with muscles attached to it, it kind of moves the other one. And so it moves a little bit. Um, We use silicone eye drops morning and night to keep it kind of, you know, wet and keep it comfortable from getting itchy or dry or whatever. And, and yeah, so like when she is tired, like a baby or a kid would be and rubs her eyes. Yes. We occasionally have it come out and she'll hand it to me or I'll hear it clink in the cup holder of the car seat and <laughs> you know, reach back and be like, Hey, could you hand me that? You know, that's, that's such a special problem for a mom. To have. <laughs> right. Yeah. I do have several, you know, a handful of memories of just driving down the highway with an eyeball in my hand. Like, well, I don't want to hand it to her because she'll like play with it or lose it or eat it or I don't know. So <laughs> I'm I, I hold over up here to... cracking up at the thought of like you know most moms, ha- you know, shudder in terror at like the the beginning stages of the vomit sound or you know something like that, and <laughs> you, yours is right. the clink of an eyeball. <laughs> Yes, and it totally has its own distinctive like cooking in the cup holder, and so <laughs> I know now what to listen for. Oh but, my gosh, has she reached the age where she messes with people with it? No, but the ocularist was like, "You can seriously make some money in elementary school, you know, pay me a quarter, and I'll take my eyeball out or whatever." Oh yeah, so she can be she's hustling. Not there yet. <laughs> oh, this is so funny. Um, so, okay, so you that is, like we said, the most present or the most obvious issue that you have. And you guys have some other special needs. You mentioned your son that has uh, type 1 diabetes, and I know that that has been a big part of you guys' story just as a family. And what are some of the other things that you guys are currently facing with Mercy? Um, she's doing pretty well now. We just had an appointment yesterday, actually, with her lung doctor, the pulmonologist, and he was really pleased we're just trying to make sure that apparently it's a concern if you have a paralyzed diaphragm that the diaphragm on the other side, you know, you would think that it would like overcompensate for not being able to breathe really deeply on one side, but apparently it can undercompensate and match the level of the one that's not working. So they just, they keep us coming to make sure that's not happening. And then um, the other concern is, she with the chronic pneumonia that she had that she doesn't keep getting recurrent pneumonia that she will get stronger her lungs will get stronger as she has longer time periods where she's not getting sick so yeah for the yeah for the last two years we've been on like you know 
bronchitis watch where we're like, no, no, don't let her get near anybody who's coughing or snotty or anything. So the cocooning in that regard lasted a really long time. Like we didn't put her in the church nursery or preschool or anything for more than a year because of that um, susceptibility that she had. But, but now she's been in preschool since August and has only had a handful of uh, respiratory sicknesses and she's doing really well. So that's yeah, so awesome. So I'm hoping she's on the other side. So, okay. So I have a couple of different, I have, and they're totally different directions that I wanted to go with with you. But um, first of all, you know, we've talked about a lot of these external issues with cocooning and, and that's solely focused on, on the child becoming comfortable and, and understanding that you are her family and that you're her caregiver. And then obviously her medical needs as well. But I want to talk some about attachment with you and your husband mm. and inter- attachment with international adoption is such a big deal. And often so many professionals and parenting books and everyone else are so focused on the child that us as adoptive parents get overlooked and how we're dealing with this. So what was that like for you guys? You know, we've, we've talked about how you, you struggled a little bit with the, the touchy feeliness of wearing her and doing right. all those things that we, we do because we love our kids. But um, how did you, how, what were some of the, the harder feelings that you guys went through? Um, the hardest thing I think for us was that that first I would say maybe three or four months, she wasn't hardly sleeping. I mean, she was sleeping, but not through the night and would wake multiple times in the night. And, you know, now I look back and I think, well, it could have been growing pains. It could have been her sickness. It could have been anxiety or trauma or, you know, you try to put a name on it, but it's just (laughs) in the moment you're like, just sleep. Right. Um, And so I think the the sleep deprivation did a number on me with attachment because I, I felt like we really instantly bonded um, to where I had a lot of fears going in. You read all the books and you, you listen to the podcasts or the, the other adoptive moms talking, and, and it seems really scary going in that what if, you know, what if she doesn't attach? What if she doesn't want us? What if she doesn't receive us? What if she didn't have good care? You know, all the things that that swirl around in your mind. Um and we don't know a lot about the care that she received, but either by the grace of God or by the the care that she did receive, she was willing to receive love. And, and that made it, I think, that much easier on us to, to be able to give it and then at least in some ways feel it reciprocated. I mean, she was a little person, but we didn't experience a lot of rejection from her. We, you know, I think we're she trusted us pretty easily or pretty quickly at least. Um, and so, you know, I feel like attachment for us came pretty, pretty smoothly and pretty easy, easily. And my husband and I both, um, it went really well. She for a long time preferred me over him, but would still go to him and would still be comforted by him. And, um, I think mostly just cause I was the stay at home mom and dad was at work all day, but, but yeah, I felt like it was really almost just best case scenario and what a relief. I know that's not the case for, for most, maybe most adoptive situations. Yeah. But I mean, I, don't know about most. I think that, that God is so amazing at showing us grace in ways that we need it because, you know, he knew that you guys were going to have a struggle with her health and with her, her vision and other stuff like that. And so, um, 
how, how awesome is it that that was one thing that you didn't have to struggle with? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so the other, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is obviously your boys are a lot older than her. Um, and I'm guessing that they're, they're pretty obsessed with her, right? Yes. My 14 year old, I will brag on him a little bit. He, he's amazing with her. He, he gets her. They, they have a special bond. My 11 year old has a great bond with her, but my 14 year old just, you know, lights up when he sees her and the same when she sees him and, and he plays so sweetly with her. And, you know, it, it, it was a concern of mine when the adoption was taking so long, I thought, Oh my gosh, they're going to be so much older than she is. Um, but it definitely has me trying to make sure that I'm more intentional about the time they do have together. Cause he's, he's in eighth grade right now. So basically he has four years of, of high school and she's not even started kindergarten yet. And just wanting to make sure that we do a whole lot of bonding, <laughs> you know, before they, the boys get too old and, and, you know, go off to college or something. And yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And they, and how do they feel about his adoption? Something that's just been a part of their lives always. So they don't know something different or did they, have they really jumped in with this and, and grasped this, um, the same way that you guys have, or like I said, or is this just something that they've been indoctrinated to and they're just kind of like, well, this is our life. Yeah, I think a little bit of the indoctrination bit, because when we started the adoption process in 08, we were like, let's just tell the boys straight off. <laughs> and, you know, hindsight, I don't know. But but we did. And so we had been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it for so long that I think it was just, you know, very normal for them. Like, this is just what it is. Um, and part of our time while we were waiting um on the international adoption, we fostered for two years. And so we had two little girls um, with us for almost two years. And so the boys got to see and live the, the effects of trauma and the effects of um, the loss and the, just the change of, of having these girls, you know, in our lives and seeing the, I mean, they, they grieved hard, the little girls did. And so, you know, I feel like as young as my boys were at the time, I think there was seven and nine when the girls came. It was it was already something that we had talked about that 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 God's heart is for children to have homes. And, you know, with with foster care, it's a an imperfect solution to an impossible problem, you know. Ideally, these girls get to stay with their biological parents and their biological parents stay healthy and and that's the best case scenario, but we're just not there. And so we are going to be the best case scenario for these girls until they're not with us. You know, we knew it was not a permanent situation, but um, I feel like my boys grew a lot through those two years seeing how the girls grieved or how they they needed love or how they rejected love or just everything that they went through um, being older brothers to two foster girls, foster daughters was, was foundational then for bringing mercy home. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That those stories always make me just really happy. And I know that so many listeners and just people considering adoption have concerns about how their biological children are going to react. And especially when you're talking about bringing home a child with special needs, um, 
whether those be intellectual or physical, um, you worry that your biological kids are not going to get the same attention or anything. But I have seen over and over again with my guests and just with friends that kids are so resilient and they want to help. They want to jump in. They want to be a part and they really understand more than we think they're going to. Yes. Yes. And I feel like it, you know, yes, it's difficult. And yes, it, um, they didn't get the attention that they would have gotten from us, but I feel like they're better on the other side, having loved these girls with us, you know, and, and, you know, one of the big lessons I feel like they took away is that people are the way they are for a reason, you know, so if this little girl is in a heap on the floor wailing, there's a reason she's not being bad. She's, you know, trying to tell us something. And, and so maybe the the empathy level in the boys increased or something during that time, because they definitely learned to pick up on, on why, why people are behaving a certain way or doing a certain thing. So I feel like that was a really good nugget for them to take away. Yeah. That's awesome. So before we jump into my closing questions, I threw it out on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing an international adoptive mama with a kid from India, um, which I have never had before. And I don't think I've even ever met anyone who's adopted from India before. So it's really cool. And I got a lot of questions because it's really cool. So um, let's jump into a few of those. So we had a couple of different questions about an agency that you might recommend. um, And if you were able to specify a certain area or, you know, city state of India to adopt from, or if you just had to kind of take what you got. Yeah. Currently, the process for an American family that is not like an Indian citizen that has moved over to America, but just a Joe Blow American, um, you can't really pick where okay. uh, your child comes from. You submit to your agency that, you know, this is kind of an age window that we are open to, and then they have you go through a special needs list of, of medical or, or physical or, you know, social needs, and kind of go through and and decide what your family is able to embrace or take on. And and then all of that gets uploaded into a system in India. And it varies a little bit how it happens, but basically your, your home study of what you're open to just gets matched with, um, with your approval. But files get released that match your profile of, of who you can adopt or who you're willing to adopt, I guess. And so it might be from the South of India or North of India, or, you know, it just kind of varies on where the files come from. There's no choice really on where it come, where the file comes from. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, I think that we have a couple of questions on the timeline, which we've already gone over. Um, but what are some of the requirements that India has for adoptive families just across the board before they'll even consider? Sure. Well, I forgot. I should have said after I said that our process took like seven years. That's not normal. That's not normal. That's not normal. So don't hear my story and think, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, run the other way. Currently, families, I would say probably 12 to 18 months is is pretty standard. Things have really um, gotten a lot more streamlined and people are, you know, doing what they need to do now. Um, yeah, that sounds better. Than yeah, thank God. <laughs> right, right. And and so, like, I was trying to think of the, the different agencies that I'm in a Facebook group of, of moms who have currently have already adopted from India and then another group of moms who 
are in process. And then there's another group of people who are interested. So search out there if you're interested. There's India interest or India adoption interest, I think, on Facebook. But a lot of the agencies that people speak really highly of for India are um, WACAP, W-A-C-A-P, and International Adoption Net and Children of the World. Um, they have great programs, and they have been successfully navigating the, the steps and the processes. So I think those are good recommendations from friends. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So... Um, so we, yeah, we talked about timeline. I'm sorry. I'm having to, we, we got a couple of repeat questions. So I'm going through and trying to make sure I'm covering all my bases. We did have a question about cost and I know that things have changed a little bit since you guys went through it. And, um, if you're comfortable releasing that information, just to give people that are interested a guideline, I think that that would be some good information to, um, discuss if you're cool with that. Yeah, sure. Um, it ranges between maybe 30 and 40,000. It depends on Obviously, the agencies will publish their fees. If they vary a little bit um, in that cost. And then some parts of India require two trips. So you'd have to go for court and then go back after you've passed court. And then other parts, other states of India, don't require two trips. And so that would obviously, you know, change your budget significantly if you're having to go over twice. Absolutely. Did you, did you guys have to go over twice or just once? Just once for us. Okay. Yeah, I was about to say, I didn't think you had said in your story getting to meet her before bringing her home. But um, so, yeah, and, and that then, was actually another question was just how many t- trips over there did you have to go? Did you have to take? Well, and the other thing that I think of when people ask about cost, you know, we experienced, I don't know if it's just grace, the grace of God. Um, our process took forever, so that helped to be able to save some money. But, um we applied for a handful of grants and we did garage sales and we did um, just various fundraisers that brought in almost all of the money for the adoption. The travel, I think, was about the only part of it that we really ended up personally paying for. So that was huge, just huge, that we did get grants, like three or four different grants. Um and people donated, you know, furniture and stuff for garage sales. So we'd have like a $3,000 garage sale, a $4,000 garage sale. That's uh, amazing. So there's hope out there if you're overwhelmed with the price. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. And I know that for a lot of adopt- um, international adoptive families, fundraising can be a great distraction from how long it takes, right? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming up with some creative ways to raise that money. Um. So we did, we had another question and I think that this could be, uh, this could be a really deep question if we, if we wanted it to, but it was a question about just her culture and her ethnicity and, and do you guys do anything special or specific to teach her about where she comes from? Mm -hmm. Well, when she first came, she wasn't even really speaking. And so part of our question was, do we try and retain her? Or Hindi and all that, and then that wasn't really an issue. I'm sure receptively she understood Hindi, but she didn't speak it to us, and so we didn't try and fight to to retain the the language part of it. But we do our best as a family. We try and cook Indian food. Um, I think it's been a, a perk that we lived there for a while, so we have a little bit of that in the repertoire already. But probably once a week, twice a week, if we can. Um, 
go out for Indian food and she still likes it. So <laughs> we'll call that success, I guess, if, <laughs> if that's a measure of anything. And then there's a, an Indian society in Tulsa of families who've, you know, moved to Tulsa from India and they do a lot. They have festivals, they have religious ceremonies and they have parties and dance lessons and, and all of that. And so we've gotten minimally involved in that. I'd love to get Mercy now that she's okay to be around, (laughs) around people and not getting sick all the time. I'd love to sign her up for the dance classes. I think she would really dig that. She loves to get dressed up in anything Indian. And so every year that we go to the India Fest here in town, I'll go shop through the aisles and, and get her some clothes. And she really, at this point, loves staying connected to anything culturally Indian. And, and I was really excited. I found out um, in the summer last year about a preschool that was composed of like, I don't know, a third maybe of them are, are kids from India whose families have moved here and they're working here. And so I drive, you know, an extra probably 15 minutes on top of what I could drive just to get her to this little school that is sweet and precious and wonderful and has all these little kids that look just like she does. And so, you know, for what I can, I try, I try and, and keep as much of the culture as I can while still living in, you know, the middle of America. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's, that's such a priority for you guys and that you've made it a family thing. I saw um, in your pictures that you guys, did you celebrate holy this year? We did. We, um, you know, it's a Hindu holiday. And so that's a little tricky with India. You know, most of the celebrations are going to be religious in nature and being Christians, we're like, well, we want to have a nod to the culture part of it, but you know, it's, it's also religious. And so I'm like, well, we're going to mix it together. And so for her birthday this year, we just did normal five-year-old birthday stuff. But then afterwards we went outside and threw colors. And so I need a whole bunch of, of essentially holy colors, just like color on colors and all the kids went out back and threw them and and holy is essentially the celebration of the beginning of spring and so we're like well we'll do this but we're not going to bring in the religious components of it we're just going to bring in the cultural components then and celebrate it and just the fun ah, i love that and, and the pictures were super cool and she just looked so happy so that's oh really she loved fun. it oh i love that so okay so um some of my closing questions we can get into now if that's cool with you sure Cool. So um, my first one is always, what do you wish that someone had told you at the beginning of this journey? Um, just if you could sum it all but into one thing that you wish you had known or you wish that someone had really made you believe. Mm-hmm. I think it would be that just to tell me, don't make decisions out of fear. I think through the adoption process and then even after bringing her home, you you can get caught up with, well, we shouldn't switch jobs or move houses because what if that screws up our adoption weight? Or we shouldn't go see another doctor because this doctor has already told us, you know, we don't want to mess up what this doctor's doing. You know, just not to make decisions out of fear and to take a deep breath <laughs> and know that God is sovereign and God is going to help and be over what's going on and that the things that you do are not going to screw up some scenario that you paint in your head. And so, yeah, 
That's a good one. I think that that's something great for everyone to remember, but especially as adoptive parents, uh, fear and worry is such a big part of our lives, unfortunately. So um, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and what is something that you wish you had done differently? Hmm. As far as as her health concerns or during the wait? Um, answer's choice. <laughs> Let's see. I don't feel like I have a lot of regrets, really, um, after bringing her home. I think just it felt like just being in such a sweet spot of finally, she's finally here. And yeah, there was just so much peace there. I don't really have any regrets. What is your favorite way that your tribe supported you guys through this whole thing? Oh, my goodness. I would say, at least over the last two years, that just our church and friends and everybody understood, you know, initially we were cocooning for bonding's sake, but then later we were kind of cocooning or, you know, inadvertently cocooning just germ-wise to try and keep her healthy. And so just that our friends were really gracious with us that we said no a lot or that half the family would come to an event or Every Sunday when we came to church, we were sitting in the lobby with Mercy, but watching the service on the screen and not in the sanctuary and not back in kids. And, you know, we weren't volunteering anymore. So I felt like we we were given a lot of grace by our friends and our, our people that they understood that we just had to pull back and do it differently. And they let us do that. And did you did you take that grace really willingly or was it a struggle for you to uh, to overcome, you know, feeling bad or um I don't know some of those feelings that we as adoptive parents, you know, we feel like we're taking advantage of our people or like our, our grace is going to run out someday. And I don't know, did you struggle with that at all? Or were you pretty much like, thanks guys, I'm going to do what we need to do. (laughs) I think for the most part we were okay. I feel like I, you know, church wise, I'm like, we volunteered, we used to volunteer and they need volunteers, but we can't volunteer. So I feel like I was having a little bit of the guilt of like pulling back and not, not helping and not, you know, not signing up for things and not being available, but, but just realizing, you know, it's a season and we'll get through it. Definitely. So So what about the opposite? What is a way that you felt misunderstood or hurt by, by your tribe, but also just by people that knew you and knew your situation, but didn't hold it with the grace that we, we needed them to, or that you needed them to. I didn't really see it so much after we brought her home. But just during the seven-year process, um, it was just difficult because obviously the waiting part was difficult, the knowing should we change plans, should we change countries, should we, you know, just do something different. Um, I feel like people were very well-meaning in their words and in their, I don't know, platitudes, I guess is what comes to mind. Like, I felt like we got a lot of Christianese, oh, God has a plan, and and it's going to be okay. And, you know, he's working all things for good. And I'm like, well, you know what? Yes. I know that he is good. I know that he, he knows what's going on, but it is not, (laughs) I don't know. I struggled with the fact that, that God wants her in our family. And so I kept leaning more toward the spiritual warfare part of it where I'm like, we've seen her picture for a year and a half. So it's really hard for me to hear the platitudes and hear the the well-meaning things 
when ultimately she needs to be home. She needs to be with us, and and we need to fight to get her there. And and so I feel like I don't know. I feel like people were trying to be sweet, but I just kind of wanted them to stop talking. Yeah, <laughs> you know, stop stop theorizing on why this, and you know, just just leave it alone and warfare with us and pray with us and and let's get her home. Yes. Well, and sometimes we're it's it's not. It's not that they are actually insinuating that we don't know that God is good, but right. sometimes it feels that way. We're like, right, but it still sucks. Like that doesn't, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make things feel better. But uh, okay, so my last one is in this um, is sounds really broad, but if you could sum it all up into one piece of advice or encouragement, that is your go-to for adoptive or foster families. Mm. Well ever since I was a teenager, kind of my life motto has been to do it scared. And so just do, do it. <laughs> you know, it's, there's always going to be something that's intimidating you or scaring you or, you know, a fear or a worry. Um, but just hang on to Jesus and push through and, and do it. <laughs> I love that. Do it scared. I just wrote that down in my notes and like started a bunch of times. That is such an awesome thing to tell yourself. I love it. That's really cool. So, um, yeah, I like I said, all along this thing, I've been looking at pictures of your super cute family, and Mercy is really adorable, you guys. So, where can we where can we follow you and um, and follow along with your and her story? Sure, I'm on Instagram at Sarah Loves India, but I'm not on there very much. Um, mostly at Facebook, so you can find me, Sarah per- Sarah Perkins Jacob, on Sarah Facebook. Per- and then I have a blog. Yeah. I have a blog that's unfamiliarpaths.com that I try to update. And, it, you know, it lists out kind of the drama of the story because I blogged while we waited and I blogged after we brought her home. So I love now that. it's just happy memories and stuff now. <laughs> yeah, but that could be such a good resource for those people that are that are in that process, that are in the waiting, um, to be able to hear your thoughts during that time, not reflecting back, but actually while you were hurting, while you were struggling, and while you were, uh, you know, trying to hold on to some patience. Sure. And in my head, I thought, I'm writing this for her. I'm writing this so that she can look back, you know, when she's older, and see how we longed for her, and see how we desired for her to be part of our family, and we fought for her. And then just to see the cute milestones that she's come along. Yes. Oh, I love that pieces. And you do have a really you you do have a lot of really awesome milestone photos on your Facebook. Um, especially just really quick, tell everyone about the elevator photo. So every time we go to the ocularist, which is about every six months, I've been taking routinely taking a photo of Mercy <clears throat> sorry, reaching for the elevator button. Okay, I have to cough and then and then I'll start over again. Okay. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> okay, so the elevator button. So every time we go to the ocularist, which is about every six months, um, I've started taking pictures of Mercy reaching for the button at the doc- at the office. And the first time I did it was just, it was, oh, look how cute she is. She can't reach the button. And then the second one, I thought, oh, I took a picture last time. And so now it's um, something that I do every time that we go. And it's just shown the massive, like massive growth that she's had. She's grown more than a foot 
in two years, two and a half years, not even two and a half since she came home. It's been truly miraculous. And so from age like two and a half, two and three quarters to five, she's grown a foot. That's crazy. (laughs) So it's well. And you can see, you can see just her comfort and and her growth and just becoming older, but also just being comfortable with your family because she looks super sassy and fun in that last photo. Mm -hmm. Yes. She's quite confident in herself. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This was truly a pleasure to get to know you guys and your story and sweet mercy. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that you took the time to chat with us tonight. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard, and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough, and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey, and He is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.